Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, so we've been doing this COVID-19 coverage for a while, and just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Peter Singer, who is a professor at Princeton and also one of the most controversial and famous uh, moral and ethical philosophers today. And he brought up this very interesting research uh, by an economist called Paul Freitas that says uh, the economic lockdowns right now would cause up to 70 times more life years lost compared to otherwise by COVID-19 if we don't shut it, shut everything down. And, and that was like a really, really interesting point because uh, I've been following economic debates for a while and there are literally no economists who are doing this kind of calculations about uh, how many years are, are being lost right now or uh, whether the, con the, the, the lockdown is actually justified because it seems that there's broad consensus among economists today that the, that the lockdown is very much justified and that what we should do is continue the lockdown for a couple of months until we find a cure or uh, let the ICU beds free up uh, or figure out some other solutions for all schools and hospital systems and later we can simply inject uh, large amounts of fiscal stimulus and monetary policy that uh, help the economic recovery. So economists have actually been debating about whether it's a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery, but most people seem to agree that this lockdown is very much justified, except Professor Frita. So I thought I would love to uh, reach out to him. He's in LSE right now, and uh, he was kindly very gracious to, to agree to this interview. So uh, I hope to really dive into this conversation with him about his justifications uh, for his calculations, why he thinks there could be uh, up to 70 times more lives years lost uh, in this uh, lockdown. Uh, so just to give a quick bio, Professor Freitas is currently a professor in well-being economics at the London School of Economics. He specializes in applied microeconometrics, including labor, happiness, and health economics, uh, and also measurement of how we can all help the well-being of others. And he is particularly active with models of cost effectiveness and how well-being can become the driving focus of nation state bureaucracy. And, and in 2009, he was voted Australia's best young economist under 40 by Australia's uh, Economic Society. So thanks so much for joining me remotely all the way from London, uh, Professor Freitas. It's great to be on the program, uh, Tiger. Yes, hello from London. <laughs> uh, so maybe we can just start off by letting you introduce yourself a little bit for uh, our listeners, your study, the economics of happiness and well-being. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about your research? Um, yes, when I started out in my PhD days in the mid-90s in the Netherlands, because I'm Dutch, uh, it was already on the economics of happiness and welfare. So welfare is sort of the monetary side, if you like, of happiness. Um, I moved into the, 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 the great economic a disaster that was happening in Eastern Europe. So I studied the Katastroika, the, the sort of huge collapse of the Soviet economy after it, it, the war fell down. And that had, was very similar to the collapse we're seeing now. That was, you know, a trading block basically dispersing. Lots of uh, countries suddenly no longer willing to send or receive goods from each other. And that led to a huge impoverishment of everybody, uh, which is exactly very similar. Um, then I moved for quite a while to Australia, about 15 years, and there I studied a lot of uh, health economics. I was really busy there in, uh, in debates on uh, what, for instance, to do with pharmaceuticals. Um, already interested in sort of government policies. I was interested in questions of racism. I was interested in questions of microeconomics, questions in how the state operates, 
And then the last three, four years, I've been back in Europe, namely in London, to sort of work for the, the government in some sense, trying to help them figure out systems by which they can put well-being more centrally in their policy focus. So that indeed is the question, well, if we're going to be serious about the happiness of the population, how do we get there? What kind of structures do we need for that? And then also the question, well, how would that change policy in a broad sense, which gets you to the question of broad trade-offs between various different things in life, employment versus, let's say, social relations versus the environment versus even lives. Uh, and so it, it, it is, as it were, a line of work which already makes you very used to thinking of difficult trade-offs as something that you just have to do that is very normal in policy. And policymakers think that way as well. But of course, much of economics doesn't really think about broad trade-offs sort of wants to leave that to politicians, but of course, largely speaking, it's an empirical question. And so we, we, we should be and are, have experts on that. And, and I suppose in addition to trade-offs, uh, it's really about having those even normative and philosophical discussions uh, while we do rigorous econometric analysis. Uh, indeed, indeed. One, one must, as it were, accept some notion of uh, an empirical measure of what the good life is, or what life is about. Um, and the reality has been, of course, that Western governments have implicitly put in uh, measures. Right? The, the, these are the measures that their treasuries or their central banks set up as the implicit maximum of their policies. And some people think it's GDP, gross domestic product. Others would say it's more rounded, more like economic surplus is more what the various cost-benefit analyses and governments maximize. Uh, in truth, it's a sort of a leaking bucket which has all kinds of things in it. Uh, and part of my job is to be part of the movement that wants to make this more rational, to make this more centrally guided by what individuals themselves think is important about them. I remember uh, last year when LSE's professor Tim Besley came to Princeton to visit and he was talking about state fragility and I was actually, I had a brief conversation with him about incorporating normative frameworks and, and discussions, especially when it comes to issues like state development, which, which uh, one could say that on, only uh, more normative conversations could be had, especially when talking about how to aid underdeveloped countries and such. So, well, the, the work is certainly really interesting. And why don't we just jump right in? Because you did this interesting calculation of life loss, and you uh, came up with this uh, concept called statistical lives lost. Uh, would you mind just Tell us a little bit more about uh, your train of thought, your calculation, just to get sure. us started. Sure. So um, there are various aspects here, right, to sort of unpack. So the first question is the statistical lives loss. That is a very old concept. I certainly didn't come up with that. It's this notion that if we're going to look at the effects of our policies, we mustn't just look at, well, what is immediately visible, you know, the lives we may save or not save that are in front of us, but also the longer run consequences of our actions. And this could, for instance, be if we don't set up new roads, then there'll be road accidents in the future. If we don't renew our energy sources, we might end up with very dirty energy sources inside houses. And that may mean that uh, young kids uh, get asthmatic or uh, sort of, you know, even die if they're very young. Um, and lots of other long run consequences of our policies. Um, and so you might call those statistical lives lost in the sense that you couldn't pinpoint whether it would be Mary or Pete who dies, but you can, as we reasonably say, that you know, in the next 10 years, a million people will be saved if we, for instance, uh, secure our food supply better than we did before. 
And so that, that sort of brings you, it, it's sort of a type of thinking really, you know, which is sort of very normal for economists around the world to do, right? Which is, we, we, we don't just look at what's immediately in front of us, we also make a reasonable deduction about the long run effects of our policies. And this is what we routinely do if we set up a dike to sort of keep out the sea. It's not that we immediately know who will be saved because this thing will be around for two or three centuries. But we sort of have some sort of notion of, a, of the statistical number of lives that we're going to save. Um, and then if we talk about this, this COVID-19 coronavirus um, epidemic, then really what we're talking about is, or at least the several calculations I've done, have been of the notion of, well, how many lives are we going to lose probably via our reactions to COVID-19 and the coronavirus? Um, versus how many lives might we have saved by our reactions. Um, and that breaks down to various different scenarios. So one scenario could be, well, suppose the world as a whole, the whole of humanity had shrugged its shoulders and basically treated it like another flu or another disease uh, of no greater consequence than the swine flu we had a, a couple of years ago, or sort of the, the new versions of the flu that come in every year. Um, and that is a particular scenario, but I've also looked at scenarios where you, for instance, look at a particular country and say, well, uh, what if we go for another year of lockdown? What do you save in terms of life just in that country alone, keeping fixed what all other countries do, uh, versus uh, opening up or having various scenarios? As to what and so the, the question then becomes a little bit, what calculation would you like to know about, Tiger? There's very, one calculation that you mentioned that uh, I think this is a blog post maybe uh, that you wrote two months ago in March and you said that the number is at least 10 million, probably far bigger that, you know, the statistical lives lost in this. And, and as you rightly mentioned, uh, it's because roads, they drive, they didn't get repaired because of the lack of funds, because of the panic, or that people die without proper health care because we didn't invest enough funds during this pandemic. So. Uh, how did you come up with that number 10 million? Yes, so, so that is sort of the, the sort of the general scenario whereby we're thinking how much does the economic and social collapse that we've seen in the last couple of months, but which was clear already in mid-March that that was going to happen, uh, which is hence due to our reaction, right? due to the reaction no longer trading with each other, mandatory closing down lots of factories and businesses, uh, and you could see the stock market already anticipating how much that would cost economy and the social system. Um, so it was the cost of that reaction versus if we'd have done basically nothing, right? If we basically the economy and the social system would have gone on. Um, I think there are sort of two or three key numbers that I can mention there. How do you get, as it were, to the number of lives that you then lose? The number of lives that you then lose can be, uh, can be calculated from the, the sort of the, the total reduction in economic activity. Because the total reduction in economic activity also has an effect on, on government expenses. Uh, and government expenses are linked to life expectancy, they are linked to health services, they are linked to the long run uh, health of the population. Um, and then there's a very rough rule of thumb. I said in uh, mid-March, now look at the stock markets, they've gone down about 20%. If you apply the 20% number to all forms of capital, so also property capital, human capital, all other kinds of capital, um, then the world economy will probably lose about $50 trillion in the next 10 years. Um, and a month later or so, the IMF came up and said, well, you know, it'll be $8 trillion in the next one and a half years, because that doesn't mean you catch up after one and a half years. It's sort of when you stop going down. So it's still 
it still takes a decade to get back up. So discount that over the next 10 years and you get pretty close to 50 trillion. Um, so, you know, that, that initial guess still seems to have stood the, the test of time. So if it goes down 50 trillion, then all you really need to do to get a ballpark number is to translate that to the number of lives that you're going to lose throughout the world via reduced government expenses on all kinds of activities. Um, and as a rough rule of thumb, one of, the, one of the broad statistics around in the world is that you know, the statistical value of a life, as it's called, so that would be for a whole 80 years of life, is around $5 million. That's, that also goes the other way around. If you lose that amount of money, then effectively that's how much life you lose because governments can no longer afford um, hospitals, they can no longer afford schools, they can no longer afford to have more clean water, Essentially, the quality of government and of individual consumption goes down. Um, and of course, well, 50 trillion divided by 5 million is 10 million. But that's 10 million whole lives. So that's about 800 life years lost. Right? If we take the world average, more like 700 million life years lost. Um, and then you think, well, okay, the average person who dies of the coronavirus, of COVID, maybe has another three to five years to go. It's hard to know. How many? It differs a little bit by country, but in the Western countries, um, where the overwhelming number of deaths have been, you know, the, these people are fairly old and have got comorbidities, so they haven't got high quality, many high quality years of life left. So if we take a number of three to four, then well, you would need to have about 200 million COVID-19 deaths to match up to the 800 million years of life lost, right? Uh, and so it, if you then plug in a reasonable guess as to, well, how many people were going to die of COVID-19, you are very quickly going to get a huge ratio of costs versus benefits. Indeed, it, it would have to be fantastically deadly, this virus, for it ever to have made sense what we did. And because the ratio is so enormous, it sort of hardly matters whether you start tinkering around with this, whether you say, oh, no, it's not 5 million per statistical livelihoods. It's, it's 10 million, or I only want to count health expenses, or, oh no, you know, uh, uh, this virus is more deadly than four. The whole percent of the, world, uh, of the world population is going to die. It doesn't matter. You are still, if we are comparing, as it were, you know, uh, the world had gone on as if versus the reactions that the whole of humanity has made. So not clear that you could choose this, but if you could as humanity, then there's just no doubt. I mean, you know, the, the, the loss of life down the line is, is way going to swamp any benefit of our reaction. Uh, well, there are immediately a couple possible ob objections I could propose. Well, the first it. one is uh, uh, I, I'm not sure whether uh, overvaluation or, or rise in value in stock market would directly uh, lead to more well-being, just like a, a devaluation of stock market could lead to loss. That's, so so the, that's the, probably the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is that, uh, sure, we, we, we can roughly estimate that because most people are dying, our old people, they probably have 35 years left. But you could also say that we don't know what COVID-19's actual impact on the, the, the human body or the health system may be. So one could get COVID-19 recovered, but you don't know what complication or other health effects it would have on the person. And also uh, if COVID-19 hits the health system, uh, we don't know what the actual cost we will, will, will have to incur on the health system that, that we end up not being able to save other lives. So uh, that's another aspect of it. But 
um, I would also surely like to, to bring up the caveat that, that you, you did write on your blog to your uh, uh, dis disagreeers, uh, opponents, that uh, if you like to disagree with me, if you don't disagree with my number, uh, maybe you could come up with alternative uh, figures. And, and I, my undergraduate team and I didn't really come up with uh, figures, and, and nor do we really find your figures to be insincere or misleading, but I suppose maybe we can go into those slides. Um, more detailed uh, justification because you, you you did write in your blog post like let's consider a different approach and take the rule of thumb that UK's National Health Service itself uses this kind of additional one additional year of healthy life for additional twenty thousand dollars around fifteen thousand pound, pounds so that's kind of a correlation calculation that they already do and that's the internal number that they used to to estimate the cost of saving a year of life and you could say that if the UK buys one year of life with $20,000, that means around $1.5 million buys a whole life. And, and you can do those kind of calculations. But uh, again, this is a very clever argument that kind of puts a concrete monetary figure on life expectancy. But one could argue that the logic could only go one way, right? It is reasonable to say that it, it costs around $20,000 to save one year of life in the healthcare system. But by giving someone $20,000, by having the stock market rise value in 20, uh, $20,000, it doesn't mean that one year of life will be saved or, or there will be one additional year of life being created, right? Well, uh, you pose a lot of questions, Tanya. Well, so I think that maybe I, we can start uh, with the I, first. Shall, <laughs> I, shall, shall I take the, the first question, yeah. which I think is, uh, is an important point to start out with, right? Which is, well, what's the meaning of the stock market? And so when I was looking in mid-March for an estimate of how much the economy, uh, which is our livelihood, right? The economy means lives, right? If you compare us to the Middle Ages when there was a life expectancy of maybe 30, maybe 40 with now, uh, our much better lives are bought with just a much greater high productivity. That's allowed us to sort of, you know, put in structures to improve our water, to improve the food supply, to to sort of spend a lot of money on our personal and communal health care, to set up immunization programs, uh, to set up better roads, to sort of set up all the things that really make life a lot healthier. So in the long run, there's no doubt that there's a strong relationship between the level of economic activity and all the innovation that comes of that and our lengths of lives and our ability to sort of survive early childhood and all of that. So in mid-March, I was looking around for a measure, well, how much is our economy going to tank? And in that sense, I treated the stock market more as a, a source of information, right? which is that stock markets, uh, yes, they are subject to all kinds of um, speculation and bubbles. Uh, but in these kind of situations, they're also the place where, as it were, the people who are most interested in, in sort of the, the future flows of money and activity in our economy, uh, these financial traders are trying to read the tea leaves and trying to think of, okay, how much are our companies going to make less profits, going to make less turnover? What is going to go bankrupt? What is not? How much do I think this is going to happen? And so the 20% drop on the stock market should basically be seen as the best estimate around mid-March of, okay, this is how much we think economic activity is going to tank. And interestingly enough, in that sense, you know, they've been proven right. If you look at what subsequently, as it were, you know, more clearer data have been, if you look at the number of people who have become unemployed, 
uh, and the underemployment of the people who are not yet officially unemployed, but basically can't work much because there's not much jobs for them, then yeah, it's about a 20% reduction in activities. That's, that's pretty much what's gone on. If you look at now the, the, the improving estimates of how much GDP have tanked sort of the second quarter of this year, we're up to 20% again. Um, and if we think of this in a discounted way, right, that, okay, probably the third quarter, fourth quarter is also going to be sort of that level of sliding backwards. It's not quite clear or on the bounce back yet. But yet, that it'll take many, many years before the economy is back. And so 15 to 20% of sort of, you know, a reduced total GDP for the next five, 10 years doesn't look so strange anymore. So in that sense, I was in mid-March just basically going for the best future-looking estimate of how much damage have we done to ourselves. Um, and interestingly enough, in mid-March, I always so looked around the world because I thought, well, you know, if only stock markets go down in rich countries where basically it takes a lot more money to sort of uh, buy or lose a life, if you like. Um, uh, but maybe in developing countries where you save a lot more lives with the same amount of money because economic development there really does improve lives quite quickly and dramatically you you saw the same going back you know the the stock market in india collapsed by just as much uh, and they have an awful lot of poor people in them because of course india has more poor people than the whole of africa together so you know it, it, i looked around for that indicator and then later on um you sort of see the more harder evidence coming in of indeed the same slide downwards so one shouldn't see the stock market just as this, you know, kind of voodoo place where people gamble. It is also a place which collects a lot of information about what is going to happen. That's where our expectations of the future economic uh, health of our countries is, is, as it were, most clearly visible. Um, and so mid-March, that was the best information as to the future. Basically, the IMF was, yeah, a couple of weeks later, they were sort of getting with the program, and then, you know, all the data started coming in of the unemployment. So let, let's take that one clear, right? Mid-March, all I did was look at the stock markets because that was the expectation. Later on, I could just back it out, right? Because effectively, we followed the script. <laughs> well, right? the stock market came back with the, with the, with the rally, right? It was, it was no, kind of weird. No, because, nowhere, uh, no, nowhere of the stock markets come back. I mean, you know, so uh, it's sort of at the peak before the crash, the Dow Jones was about, what, 29,000? Now it's about 25,000. So it's still down more than 10%. Right? But, but it's, re it's really interesting that the stock market will rise, you know, the, the Dow would rise uh, 500 pounds just uh, because Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, announced a new fiscal stimulus or, or, or whatever monetary policy there might may be. And, and you could say that the stock market soaring or, or downfalling has really nothing to do with Main Street, right? I mean, I, I agree with you that stock market absorbs a lot of information and it could be a... a, a, a a roughly good estimate to, to how our life standards may be. But there are also a lot of economists these days that, that have come out and say, uh, the, the, why are the stock markets soaring in the middle of a pandemic? And, and it's well, kind of weird. I mean, I mean, you know, there, there are many arguments to be made there, right? I mean, now we're sort of veering into a lecture on macroeconomics, I fear. Uh, we, can, we can stick around there for a while, right? Um, but not too long, I hope, because there's a lot of other material to get through. Um, but of course, you know, the, the stock markets look forward, sort of, okay, in today's currency, how much do we think that, uh, that the stock should still be worth, i.e. the profit streams and the dividends that they're going to give back to us. 
And in that sense, you know, mid-March was just, because the collapse was sort of, you know, February, March, uh, that was sort of the, the expectation of the stock market. Now, there are other things that move the stock market, and one of them is just how much money is floating in the economy. So the massive money printing that has gone on, in principle, also means that in the longer run, you expect the money to be worth a lot less. Uh, and the fact that the interest rates have gone close to zero also means that effectively the value of money in that sense, in terms of the goods it's buy, has gone down. Now, if you like, you know, that, that just means anticipated inflation means, okay, just, just nominally speaking, the stock markets are back. But it's tricky to see, you know, that, that that's not connected to, as it were, a recovery in productivity. That's more connected to the fact that, well, in nominal terms, there's just a lot more money around now, right? Uh, and the, the sort of, you know, expectations of future uh, inflation also starts to play which really were not sort of likely to be relevant in sort of, you know, mid-February, uh, early March. So yes, there are other things that go around in the stock market, but that's why I keep coming back to that point. You know, mid-February, that collapse was due to saying, okay, suddenly we think this profit stream of the companies is going to be a lot less. And that was, as it were, the, the, the signal. And as I say, later on, that's been proven out. So if you like it, it's been a good day for the efficient market hypothesis people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Stock markets are not, are, not, are not totally crazy, right? <laughs> right. I have been, I've been just uh, reading uh, works by uh, Professor Benno Amenderbrot, and he was, uh, he's a big proponent that, is, is, well, markets are fractal, and uh, the, the theory is that the markets of Brownian motion were random walk that today all you can really know is the expectation of tomorrow's value and, and he completely disagrees with some of some of it but well, <laughs> it's really interesting but what about the idea of, of value uh, because uh, sure let's say there is a correlation between wealth and life expectancy and therefore mm -hmm. a, a correlation between the stock market and, and wealth and, and life mm -hmm. expectancy but, but shouldn't we keep in mind that this concept of value is after all a, a kind of a subjective concept that we've really created under a set of economic theories and assumptions, uh, very important assumptions that if those assumptions don't really hold in real life, then those ways that we value things might not hold. So, so for example, one could say, look at all the essential workers, like those uh, healthcare workers or people working in nursery homes uh, or, or plumbers, whatever, that are actually keeping the economy going right now rather than the, the stock market traders. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the essential workers are so essential to the economy but they're not being valued in the right way, right? Whereas the, the, the traders that, so what one could say well, Rich, that- you are, you, are, you are opening a lot of brackets again, Ty. Well, so. <laughs> why don't we close it down? I, I suppose, yeah. Exactly. Sorry, but, yeah. But, but on this notion of value, let me agree. I mean, I have spent my academic life arguing that, you know, we should put the well-being of a population first. And the well-being of a population is nothing more than, as it were, you know, the discounted happiness of the whole population from now till they die. And if they live longer, then this discounted stream goes up. So I am definitely the guy who argues for, no, it should be about happy, happy lives lived. But it doesn't mean there's no information in the stock market or that the stock market is just, you know, totally random noise. <laughs> <laughs> I am still in the car, okay. right? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, that, 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 that's totally fine. But I, I suppose uh, it's really interesting because you said, the, the, the concept of statistical lives lost is not about pinpointing uh, whether, whether it's, it's Ben or Jerry who died. I'm, I'm using ice cream references right now. But, but it's rather that uh, the, the rough statistical estimate. 
So mm-hmm. I suppose it might be hard for someone to, uh, to be fully convinced by the argument that because it's really impossible to concretely measure impacts of a policy or, or lives lost, right? right? We can ballpark something, but it's really hard to say because one could say, oh, what if coronavirus hit? A lot of people died. But because coronavirus hit, we, we've, the society has built around this social cohesion or, or we've ended up passing healthcare reforms because of uh, coronavirus and that ended up uh, saving more lives. So what one could say, we don't really know the impact of an event or... or, or well, uh, I mean, let's, uh, uh, let's take that seriously. Right? I mean, I am a consequentialist. And so I'm interested in the argument, okay, down the line, how much are we saving? How much are we losing? And also, that that should be the business of governments, that we should indeed think forward and think, well, okay, you never know anything for certain, but just what is the more likely argument, uh, and where does the balance of the probability lie? Right? Um, and on that, of course, if you have reduced economic activity, you also, down the line, have reduced government health services. You have reduced numbers of innovations, right? Just because people are now being idle. As were, the innovators are at home and twiddling their thumb half their, their day. And so if, if we're going to talk about, well, new inventions that would shape the world, those have been knocked back. Right? They've not been held forward. There's a lot of our productive and creative part of our, our economy and our thinking is being reduced. Right? So in that sense, that, that kind of calculation also goes toward what have we lost? What have we not done in this period? Um, and of course, also the, the huge severing of lots of economic ties between countries, but also between companies within countries, which means that there's just a lot to rebuild before we even get back to where we were before, even on a, on a technological scale. Right? So, you know, the car industry has tanked, the aviation industry has tanked. There's not been many industries which have really been going hell-bent forward. I mean, some, yeah, supermarkets, you know, they've done well. Uh, Zoom has done well out of this, the technology. <laughs> <you> know, they, <laughs> but but you're, you're going to be hard put, you know, looking for, as it were, you know, the, the technological breakthroughs made in this time that were possible. Now, but I now want to take out one of your second points, which was, well, yeah, how do you know what would have happened with this new disease? I think one should put this in the context, of course, of, of, of a humanity which has hundreds of diseases running around in our population around the world. And if we're going to be serious about the notion that every new disease you know, has uncertainties in it, and that the safe thing to do is to, to halt all life as we know it until we know for certain what happens with a new disease, you could stop every week. There's a new disease every week out because, of course, you know, nature doesn't stop. Viruses, they, they, they sort of keep mutating, and the same is true for bacteria uh, and all kinds of other pathogens. And so the argument that, oh, here is something we don't yet know 100%, we've got to stop life as we know it until we know it for certain, that means we'd never do anything again. And so there's no way that that could be the basis for any type of policy. Rather, it must be the opposite way around. It must be the case that we say, look, with any new virus, which will happen again in the future. This is not the last new one to hit us. It, it, the proof of the pudding is going to be the other way around. It's got to be, look, we, we should sort of roughly keep going as we are, make sensible precautions, yes. But this kind of massive stopping of life, which will have, for sure, you know, millions of deaths uh, in the coming uh, years, and probably in the coming months, if you look at, of course, the hunger statistics around the world and the dire predictions that are now being made, because, you know, we, we're no longer inoculating people. People are not daring to go to hospital. So 
there's, there's a virtual certainty of millions of lives lost versus very few loss of the virus. There's no way that, that we can have a system in which it's sensible to do this with every little threat that comes along. It's got to be more the proof of the pudding has got to be the other way, you know, prove that it's reasonably sensible to hold life to the degree that we have for a next threat. That next threat had better be something, you know, 10, 100 times worse, even at the outset, than COVID-19, plus to have gone into the sort of overreaction that we've done this time. So precisely this notion of uncertainty, it's got to be flipped around. Right? We, we, we cannot, with every little thing, you know, stop life as we know it. Sure, there are uncertainties. There's an uncertainty every time you go outside. That doesn't stop you, I hope. <laughs> no, that, that, that is a great argument. I mean, you, you brought up, uh, when you were answering this question, you said, uh, I'm a consequentialist. And maybe I thought we could dive into a little bit deeper into the moral ethical debate and moving away from uh, debates about the stock market. So uh, <laughs> I, I did take an uh, intro, introduction to moral philosophy this semester, and, and, and uh, we'll, we'll see if my intro level knowledge could, could help uh, provide some background to the information, because a consequentialist basically says that uh, an act is right if and only if uh, its consequences are at least as good as those any other alternative possible acts in that situation. And um, you brought up this really interesting um, case of, uh, you wrote this article called The Corona Dilemma, which is you likened the coronavirus crisis response to the trolley problem. And the trolley problem mm -hmm. is a classic problem where uh, you're on a trolley uh, and if you don't switch uh, the trolley to a different track, you will kill maybe one person or three people. But if you switch it, uh, maybe there's a baby or there's an old man or there are a hundred people. So you make those kind of impossible decisions between uh, do numbers really matter in, in terms of that or, or uh, what actually matters in those uh, more ethical situations. And you liken the situation to very, with a very interesting twist because you said uh, the reason why decision makers are not really pulling the lever to uh, steer us to the more utilitarian uh, optimal way is because they're under pressure, uh, social pressure, political pressure. Uh, for example, if you kill one person, that person's whole family is there. And if you kill that one person, that person's family is going to come after and ruin your social standing. However, if you turn the track, you will kill 100 people. So uh, it would certainly be ideal if you kill that one person, but killing that one person will endanger yourself. And therefore, that person is not willing to kill the, the one person rather than 100. And, and basically, in this case, politicians are not willing to sacrifice the lower amount of people because under political pressure or whatever. So uh, am I doing justice to your argument? or? Yes, um, I mean, for, for those listening, when I, when I was sort of trying to explain the strange choice that humanity has made, I put up a hypothetical in which uh, an individual decision maker, this is how philosophers think, you know, reality of course never works that way, but it's, it's they like to think of a hero decision maker who has you know, absolute control. And in this case, the decision maker has a, has a train whom the decision maker can uh, divert or not, that is the choice. Uh, if the train is not diverted, it hurls towards someone they know, you know, an elderly frail person with a family and friends looking on to you, uh, and they're shouting, oh, divert the train, divert the train. If you do divert the train, you kill 50 other people. Uh, you don't know which 50 others they are, and their friends and family are not watching so closely. Uh, but you still kill 50 other people, including other old and frail people in your own country, and including in other places. You know, you sort of lose in any demographic, um, but it's just less visible. 
And I said, look, we've chosen the second option. We've actively killed 50 people by our action. Right? Whereas, whereas the classic trolley problem is sort of, well, you know, the, the train goes towards five people uh, and you shouldn't divert it that it then kills one person. And so I deliberately twisted that around and said, no, but now we've chosen action to kill more people, right? We, we, we've deliberately killed the other hundred because this one person, or at least in, in a media sense, was highly visible. And I do think that that is roughly what has happened, that the, the media has, has put this threat so under the limelight and also social media. We ourselves have done this, not our politicians. We ourselves have done this. But it's so under the, the spotlight has made us so fixated on that threat. We haven't seen the huge damage we've done to ourselves trying to avert that threat. Uh, and in that sense, it, we've been like rabbits caught by the headlight. I mean, it's mass hysteria. That's sort of what, what it should be likened with, right? This obsessive focus day after day with a few people who are sort of infected and dying of this disease. But what about the huge damage we're doing to ourselves, which is a high multiple more important? It's really interesting. You brought up this idea that we are actively making a choice. We, we actually made the switch. Uh, and, and that's actually something uh, philosopher Judith Thompson actually brought up when, when she was writing about uh, the trolley problem. And she was saying that uh, numbers don't really matter. What matters really your mindset is that you, what are you actually doing in the moment? If you are actively switching to kill one person to, to, to save five, that's mm -hmm. probably not as justified. So uh, I would love to go a little bit deeper in this idea that the politicians are making an active decision because I could make the argument that may I say that uh, if the government, even if they might kill fewer people by doing nothing and letting the economy stay open, the mindset of the politician is, 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 is that we need to do something, right? We need to do something to help save people. And, and the, in, in politicians' mind, they are making an active decision to to not sit out in this crisis. So you could say that by not doing anything, by actively making a choice to stay out of any possible uh, lockdown or quarantine or social distancing, by not doing thing, something, that mindset is actually more reproachable uh, because it is inactive and defeatist. And if you're making a choice to not sit out of this crisis, you tried something, and even though the lockdown measure is not perfect, even though it caused panic, but we've tried something, and, and that's all that matters, right? That the politicians try something, and that's that, applaudable. I, I, I do see that, but of course, that is a kind of a pagan, you know, Neolithic farmer idea that oh, we must do something. Neolithic farmers <laughs> sacrificed their own children because they were afraid of the harvest, uh, and they were afraid of you know hunting being particularly bad. But the notion of uh, we must do something, and hence it's good to do the something. No, that's not a consequentialist way of thinking at all. The doing something has got to make sense in itself. And merely this notion of, well, we should do it because uh, we're then seen to do something. That is, that, that is you know, a negation of the enlightenment. It's totally anti-scientific. <laughs> this, this is back to medieval sacrificial logic. You know? Oh, there's a problem. We must do something. No, that's not logic. That's not science. Sciences, what are our options? What are the likely consequences? Let's take the best one. Right? And in this case, we have chosen to basically take actions, which have got many, many more of us killed down the line than if we'd not taken those actions. That's, that's now pretty clear. 
And it doesn't yet mean that every choice, you know, has been bad or what we should do as an individual country or state the next week. That's another question. But for humanity as a whole, this has been shooting foot time. So do you think there's any uh, debate in terms of um, letting a smaller uh, group of people die, but, but uh, they're all old people versus uh, letting a bunch of people live, more people live, but, but, the, and, but having a, a, a slight few years of lives lost, uh, incurred on them. So. Um, I mean, I, I used to think, you know, when, when the initial data came out, uh, you know, this virus might be um, aggressive enough for that kind of argument to be made, which would be that, well, th there is at least a, a distributional loss amongst some group of individuals, the old and the frail, now it's it's it seems more and more that even that is not true because of course if you think about the people who've lost because the economy is going down lots of people are unemployed but also with the lockdowns with the social distancing you know, people have been shoved away they've been sort of alienated from each other they've been made lonely um and who loses out most well the old people their pensions have gone down they are amongst the most dependent on, you know, property prices, stock markets, state pensions. They will go down because we've all been impoverished. They can't make other life choices anymore when it comes to earning their wages. The young can adjust, they cannot. Who is, is most at loss in terms of the health services that have got to go down uh, across many parts of the world because governments simply can't keep up with expenditures? Well, they're the ones who are most dependent on that. So also the social services, which they... Uh, depend on more will go down. Also, who's been, as it were, made more lonely? Who now no longer can see the younger members of their family? Who dies alone? Because, you know, the medical profession now doesn't want them to, to sort of be in contact with others. It's again the lonely and the frail. So, to a certain extent, you know, they've been the biggest losers of all of our reactions. We've, we, we've instigated a kind of apartheid system against the old and the frail. They now could be, you know, kept in the background. And we say it's for their safety, but they're still going to die of something else. Yeah, and, and basically now they die alone, away from friends, uh, and no real way of sort of engaging with others anymore. It's been absolutely horrible what we've done to the old and the frail. So this notion that we care about them, I think is totally false. We don't. We just don't want them to die of this scary virus. But other than that, we don't care about them at all. Right? And, and I suppose that they're going for them. That go to a greater debate is that uh, even if we continue to live, but if we all live like this, you know, not going outside and not really interacting with anybody, uh, is that mm -hmm. living? What's the point of living then? So, so I yeah. think a lot of people make that argument. You know, yeah, I'd rather absolutely. have the virus. Absolutely, and and I've made that argument because that's exactly the sort of thing you do as a well-being economist. You actually put a number on this. Well, you know how much does the quality of life go down via this loneliness? And we now have pretty good estimates that in terms of well-being, maybe five to up to 10% of the quality of life has been reduced, which is similar to saying, you know, of, of every 10 days, one or a half has been taken away from you just because, you know, the quality of life is less. In, in your case, you're a young guy. By these uh, lockdowns, it's harder to date. It's harder to go outside of your friends. You're sort of locked in. Well, how many days in a week or in a month would you be willing to give up in order to sort of have your regular life back again? And you don't have to give me an answer now, but it won't be zero, right? There has been a real reduction in quality of life. 
And as soon as, as you buy a kind of a well-being metric, which I do and I advocate, then you get actual numbers for that. We now do have actual numbers for that. We've, we've, we've looked over time in the UK and other countries at how much anxiety has gone up, how much their happiness levels, their life satisfaction levels have gone down. And it's been a high number. You know, people have been very anxious. and They value their life a lot less now than they did before in terms of its quality. And that too can be translated into life years lost. And again, we are talking about, if this is sustained for years, hundreds of millions of life years lost. Hundreds of millions. I mean, there's this, this virus had to be an order of magnitude more aggressive, not just for humanity to sort of even make this, this choice of kind of lockdowns, but also to continue it. You know, so that also goes to the notion of, well, does it make sense to do this for another month? The loss per month is just absolutely enormous. If you lock down the whole population, it's as if you take uh, five to 10% of the quality of life of the whole population. Well, in the case of America, that's 330 million individuals. Their quality of life goes down 5%. Well, that's one twentieth of their life year that is then lost in the whole year. 330 million divided by 20 is what? 16, right? 16 million life years lost per year of the lockdown. That is a big number, Tiger. So, you know, uh, and how many people have just died of the coronavirus in, in the States? It's a bit over 100,000, right? Yeah. Well, these people have another four or five years to live. So that's maybe 500,000 life years lost versus the 16 million per whole year if you'd lock everybody down. Well, even per month, it's over a million, right? And that's just the loneliness. That's not even counting the GDP. That's not even counting the unemployment or the social services or the health services. And so very quickly, you know, the calculus just becomes overwhelming, that it makes no sense what we've done. Makes no sense. Makes no sense from a grand scale, make no sense on a, on a micro scale. I, I just want to go slightly deeper into that uh, point because in um, the debate about trolley problem and consequentialism, there's also another interesting case, which is the World Cup final watching TV case, which is that uh, let's say someone is chained to this whatever electric grid uh, and the whole world is about to watch the World Cup final right now. And if they decide to watch the final, uh, it, will, it will activate the grid and kill the person. But so in order to save that person, the whole world needs to come together and say, we're not going to watch the World Cup final. And is it justified to turn off the t all the TVs in order to save one person? And philosopher T.M. Scallon would probably say no. I mean, he, he, he would say we should save the person because he has this contractualism formula that is saying that an, an act is right only if and only if it, it is justified to other people on terms that they cannot reasonably reject. In other words, um, if on a one-to-one -one basis, uh, I come to you and say, can you make some sacrifice in order for me to live? Um, if, if, that, if that applies on a one-to-one -one basis, I should also apply in, the, in a more grand scale or, or in the sense that uh, to apply to the COVID case, we could say, sure, I'm sacrificing little bit part of my mental health or I can't go out with my friends, but our society should really come together in order for someone not to die because dying, sure, there's only three years of lives lost, but, 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 but it's dying. It's not just three to five years lives lost for, for an old man, right? Yes, but, but, but Tiger, I mean, that's when we return again to the first point, you know, which is many more people are going to die in the US and in all the other countries due to our reactions then we're ever really a threat of this virus. That is now clear. That is now the trade-off that one has faced. 
I mean, you, you, in the US, you've just given a Nobel Prize to somebody who's written this Deaths of Despair book, which is all about the reduction that people have in terms of their, their pride of having a job, their thank that they have a future. Uh, because of not that, they engage more in substance abuse, they engage more in suicide. Uh, the US health system, as you know, is, is a lot less good than the European ones in keeping people alive. And that can only be expected to reduce even further, of course, with the uh, reduced public services that are probably going to come in the US as a result of this. Uh, that too costs lives. That too is a decision, right? Um, and then if we think about the knock-on consequences to the rest of the world, you know, the huge impoverishment that has taken place in nearly the whole of the developing world, you know, in Africa, there are whole cities which are now, you know, thought to be in danger of, of tremendous famines costing millions of people. The same in India, the same in parts of Southeast Asia and other countries. You know, there is just, the, there is a disaster happening around us in the world of an order of magnitude higher than these kind of tiny numbers of deaths that we've seen in these Western countries. And in terms of, the, to pick up this point on, well, you know, doesn't this make us a more cohesive society? I mean, do you really believe that we're going to be a more cohesive society if we're 20% poorer than we were before? If we've instigated an apartheid-type system, which is, on a stay away from everybody else, you know, don't be warm, don't hug each other, don't sort of be a normal, regular human being, see every other human being as a threat, somebody who, who could give you a virus? I mean, this is not pro-cohesion, this is against cohesion. You know, and I think that a lot of the riots that you're seeing right now in Minneapolis and the other places there's a lot of historical reasons for those things, but one of the other reasons will be this alienation that you've just had, you know, and, and, and that has just been sort of massively propagated. See, everybody else is a threat. Well, you should hope that that kind of attitude doesn't actually win out. You don't want everybody to see everybody else as a threat. But that is the logic of, of this sort of, you know, total focus on this virus, which after all is not all that deadly but it makes you see everybody else as a potential problem. So, so why do you think we've come to this stage? Uh, you advise policymakers, you talk to a lot of people in policymaking mm. as well. Is it because there's a general mob mentality that rushed people into making this uh, a prevailing narrative that we need to be so scared, we need to go into lockdown or else your political- well, I, I, I do see this as, as, as the world's first huge hysteria. But the logic is exactly the one that you were using, Tiger, which is something must be done. That is the logic. <laughs> that is a, you yourself are a perfect example of why politicians have felt they had to do something. <laughs> you too call for this. So you, you don't need to analyze the rest of the world. Just analyze your own motivation for saying something must be done and you will see the answer. I mean, the problem is not in other people. It's also in you, Tiger. Right. right? I, 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 I start to see now. <laughs> but, 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 but why shouldn't I want to help out or, or, or get something done in order to... to well, but, but that's not a scientific attitude. The scientific attitude is not something must be done. The scientific attitude is more, what are the options realistically on the table? What are the costs and benefits of the various options? And if, you know, this is something we could do, Fine, doesn't yet mean you need to do it because something needs to be done. No, no, analyze its consequences. And if you don't do that, well, then you are, you know, in the sort of the prehistoric case again, we're sort of back to the Middle Ages. Yeah, something must be done. You know, let's hide everybody away, you know, kill lots of the population in the future, but because at least we're doing something. I mean, it's not, it's not a scientific logic at all. 
so do you think there's any merit to the idea that you know right now we should build a more robust welfare state fiscal state and, and have those policies to shield people from negative effects and at least carry them through this difficult stage and maybe that could help us come up with better solutions in in this two to three months of lockdown period and then do you think this strategy is sustainable um well i mean I, i'm a warm proponent of a reasonable welfare state on the empirical basis that it makes people happier and it makes them live longer so a reasonable welfare state i think has proven itself around the world and you see new countries which are getting richer like china setting up welfare state structures for the same reason it's because it's in the interest of their population to do so and i've advocated for a long time that yes the united states should also have more of a welfare state set up um you know it, it gradually reduces the crime the huge amount of tensions in one country but of course at the end of the day this is up to americans to, to sort of argue you know i in that sense i'm a european and can only say look uh, this seems to be working out everywhere else why, why don't you try it yourself right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but that is an internal matter i i guess for the us but uh, i don't quite see the us debate going that way do you uh, what well, well, i think the us uh, are, are having debates about you know progressive taxation or or universal healthcare it's it's been in the academic discourse for a while and people recognize yeah. drastic issues like inequality and, and how we need this kind of fundamental grounds up revolution or rethinking of capitalism or, or systems uh and, and uh, i think a lot of people are hoping that this crisis could be the trigger of it that, that it could push us there yes but I, i i see a lot of wishful thinking in that right i mean you you, you see a lot of things on on the internet in the newspapers whereby everybody who's who has a particular problem in mind there's oh this is the opportunity to solve that problem and you know whether this is uh, global warming or uh, extinction of species or uh, international cooperation or human rights or whatever it is that they care about they say oh this is the opportunity to solve it yeah it's no different from the week before the virus and it doesn't mean that the virus has made it more likely at all that this will be the next problem that we'll be worried about yeah i would say more the opposite we've created a huge new problem and that will start to push out a lot of other um priorities that were previously on the table we we probably start to care less about many other things because well now look what new problem we have huge unemployment we've got to overcome we're going to have the problem that lots of people can't afford their mortgages lots of shops have gone bankrupt uh, tremendous loneliness a fear in our society there's just lots of new problems to address you know i i think the this notion of oh yeah these other things we should solve are going to be pushed to the background are are you more of a pessimist in the sense <laughs> or well i'm i'm in the long run uh, tremendously an optimist i i mean uh, you know i thought sort of february 2020 was the high point of humanity in the sense that we were with more people on the world than ever and we were doing reasonably well uh, i have been absolutely amazed and sort of very saddened we as human beings have done to ourselves for no real reason whatsoever i mean we we've just thrown ourselves into an abyss as if it made any sense without really thinking beforehand as to where the onus of proof should be or what the balance of probability was uh, and just indeed as you yourself indicated something must be done yes let's shoot ourselves in the foot that looks like something let's do that um but we'll we'll recover you know humanity as a whole still has got a lot going for it and i'd still prefer to live in 2021 than i would have liked to live in let's say you know 
1930. So <laughs> 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 I am still an optimist, you know. <laughs> so so this is why, sorely testing me, Tiger. <laughs> why, why don't Why don't we go into uh, next steps? Uh, you, you talked about reopening. You talked about economic recovery. You wrote about herd immunity. Uh, and there's one, uh, I quote your pa passage from this article, COVID strategies for Australia, herd immunity or quarantine land. And you wrote, I think the smartest option around is to have a designated period in which one tells the old and frail to stay away from the active part of the population, whilst one deliberately created uh, herd immunity by letting the healthy who come most into contact with others get a mild infection in the nose. You literally give them nose sprays with the virus, mm -hmm. the technology that we already have, you could mass produce quickly so you're, you're, you're saying we're going to give everybody corona all the healthy ones so that we could build herd immunity very quickly yes i, I think that's <laughs> the smartest option to do i i think for the states it's no longer all that relevant because strangely enough largely via incompetence you sort of seem to have done most of that anyway um but i <laughs> in places like australia where effectively almost no one has been infected and the same goes for New Zealand and the same goes for lots of other countries, which now face a, a sort of a catch-22 situation, which is that they have almost no cases in those countries. And so there's no immunity to it, whatever. So they're just as susceptible to a, a wave if they would open up their economies, if they would allow lots of new foreign students and travelers and tourists in uh, as before. Well, those countries hence have a very, very stark choice, which is sort of, you know, hide behind, as it were, quarantine walls to keep the virus out until this magical vaccine comes. And we'll hope for it to become soon. But of course, the history of vaccines is that it takes a couple of years before they come. That's the history of them. It's not that we find one within a couple of months. And even if we take shortcuts, it's not likely that this thing is going to be online for the next 12 months at least, you know, unless there is some kind of miracle. Um, well, are they really going to would destroy large sectors of their economy to sort of wait for the vaccine the next 12 to 18 months, taking the chance that this vaccine won't come in the next 10 years. They're going to kill off a lot of their economy, which is going to create a lot of hardship if they're going to do that. Or if you're going to accept, okay, we've got to open up. We've got to somehow accept that we're going to be part of the rest of the world. Um, how do you catch up with Sweden? I, I like to call it, right? Which is, okay, you, you sort of want to protect the old by creating some notion of immunity in the people who are around them. Well, why don't you see that as the engineering problem? Right? How do you most quickly create uh, immunity in a population? Well, you basically get those people for whom this virus is not a big uh, health danger at all to sort of have a mild infection of it so that they have antibodies, but they're not seriously sick. Uh, and yeah, you, you do that as a state program. And being American, you can sort of pay people to do this, right? Uh, why not make it a That market? sounds like the scariest thing. To, that would sound people don't even want to get vaccinated, and we're talking about getting a shot of COVID in their nose. I mean, that, that would look. Uh, people get flu shots every year, and flu shots every year are basically weakened form of viruses. So this notion of giving people an active pathogen, which in principle is not healthy for them, but it saves them from something worse, is very normal. That, that's that's your yearly flu shot. That's also your yearly vaccinate or the vaccination that people get for measles and mumps, uh, things that you know ninety percent of the population gets. Those two come with risks, you know. But but this there are children who die of those things, not many, and they are saved in a much higher probability than otherwise. 
So this is not a strange thing to do. We just now do, we, we just accept that this is sort of, you know, the, the, the smartest option around. That's what I was advocating there. I didn't say this was politically likely, but I did say this is probably the smartest thing to do. Wow, I, I I suppose vaccines at least don't really kill people. I, like, I, but but actually getting everybody infected with COVID, that could not that everybody, could... but the people basically for whom there there's very little health risk. Yes, that probably is the smartest thing to do. But uh, uh, I mean, but, but 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 I encourage you to look at what actually happens with vaccines. There, there, there's no such thing as a vaccine with no dangers. I mean, it's more that they're more likely to protect you because you know there's just a bigger threat out there. And the same, of course, goes for, for individuals themselves, because it, they may be young and strong now, and so that basically they, they shrug this uh, virus off with no problems, and they, they have then an immunity, and one has to see how long that immunity lasts. They'll become old and frail. They would probably prefer to sort of get their immunity earlier in life, rather than having to get it later in life, where it's much more of a chance. So, you know, even from an individual point of view, until the vaccine comes, this is not such a strange idea, even for an individual optimized. Uh, what, 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 what about the alternative, which, which is to do massive testing, uh, contact tracing, and mm -hmm. then reopening with social distancing? I mean, Hong Kong's doing yeah. it, Singapore's doing it, South Korea. Well, yes, but look at the cost of doing that. I mean, social distancing comes at tremendous cost, both to the economy. Uh, you've got to keep doing this, but also you, you can't let in busloads of tourists who are doing this and running around very hard to see a, a public transport commuting system functioning clearly with that kind of social distancing. Very hard to see any notion of a mass event anymore if you do social distancing. Are you going to have opera? How are you going to have uh, football games? How are you going to have uh, theater plays? How are you going to have um, you know, mass events with people going to a, a live band? Right? You are killing off a lot of joy in life by this social distancing. And a lot of the economy, you know, you're killing off a lot of office spaces if you're going to have this social distancing. And so once again, you're sort of giving up a large part of life for what is a, only a tiny risk of death. Uh, and so really, again, if you do the numbers properly, which I've done several times now, it, it, it's a no brainer. You are going to kill way more people by this social distancing and these kind of you know, introduction of rules on any metric, even if it is in terms of old people dying, young people dying. I mean, so overwhelmingly, the cost-benefit analysis, no, this is going to cost you way more than you can potentially save by this. It just makes no sense. And, and, and part of the problem in this debate is people are not talking like this. Why don't they churn out the maps? What, what do you think is going to happen with social distancing? How large is the damage of keep doing that? And this track and trace as well, this is going to be on the people who are sort of uh, traveling around. Uh, you're going to want to test them before they travel. That means there's a delay. Are you really going to have a kind of a COVID police running around making you force you to sort of do these tests all the time? Is that really how you want to run your society? You know, there's also a civil liberty issue to that and the long-run consequences of that. Uh, people are, are, are sort of giving up health and liberty for what is a tiny, tiny risk. Uh, do you foresee... It possibly going wrong? I mean, as we build herd immunity, because the articles that say, you know, first of all, you need at least 60% of the population needs to be exposed to the virus in order to be considered mm -hmm. immune. And then um, even the hardest cities right now don't reach that level, so, which means we would actually have to institute those programs. And as we institute those programs, uh, certainly there would be political op opposition. Libertarians would come out and say, this is, this is 
terrible. I mean, the, we're not even talking about anti-vaccine vaccine people. We're talking about just general population will be so scared by this. And then, so that's the political feasibility discussion. But even scientifically, what if this goes wrong? I mean, I mean, the, the uh, yes. well, but I mean, let me answer you too, there, Tiger. So you quoted from an article of mine in which I said, look. Probably at this moment, the smartest thing to do is to just actively catch up with Sweden and then catch up with New York, I might say as well. <laughs> catch up with New York. <laughs> I know, the, I know this, is, this is not the way that the Americans look at it, but it, right. it is the way I think down the line they will start to look at it, which is that uh, New York has suffered more deaths, but also has much larger levels of immunity. So it can get on with its economy much quicker, uh, and that too has its benefits, of course. And they can get on with social life much quicker. There are now neighborhoods in New York which is, uh, have about 50% immunity levels via these antibody studies. That's huge. Those people, I hope, will find themselves in high demand on the labor market now, you know, because they can be trusted. They're already immune. You can, you can have them be around the old and frail and sort of be their, uh, their nurses and whatnot. Um, and so, yes, you can do sort of quick catch-up, right? Um, but I already said in that article, I see almost no political feasibility of that, but that's just me trying to be the honest scientist. A more normal way of doing it is just opening up the economy and take your chances. You know, some special arrangements for the people in retirement homes and nursing homes. But apart from that, basically encourage people to get on with life and treat this as just another one of, you know, uh, several hundreds of diseases. You know, not worth basically stopping your life over. Well, well you guys tried uh, herd immunity initially in the UK, right? And, and, and well, the government yeah, came under so much the, pressure. <laughs> I know the, the story in the UK, well, they were all exactly like you, Tiger. They also saw this, this sort of fear coming and said something must be done. And they said, Italy and China, and they said, oh, that looks like the something, let's do that. So I'm, being, I'm not being facetious, you know. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to just make it clear why it is the population have done this. It's because they fought exactly the same as you fought, which is right. something must be done. Well, why? Right. And initially, the virologists sort of held on to, you know, the logic of their models, which is, well, herd immunity is sort of the only long way to go. And vaccines are going to be a long time. So we, we've got to be smart about this. But they, I think they just panicked. Uh, they just panicked. There was so much pressure on them, also from all these supposed scientists who said, oh, no, this is such a risk. We must close down the economy without any notion of the huge social and economic disruption that that would cause. It has been so anti-scientific what these scientists have been preaching. But the virologists who sort of were holding out for a while, they just lost their cool. They, yeah, you know, you churn out the model again, put in some different data. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's way too dangerous. Let's, let's close everything. And then they were listened to. And, and my reading of them is that they've sort of regretted it ever since. You know, it wasn't for until a couple of weeks later, you know, the, the, their new model projections were again that this thing wasn't in fact so deadly. Um, so why do you think the rest of their life? Yeah. Why do you think this really happens? I mean, it seems that uh, in moments of a crisis, where whatever issue comes up, uh, there would be contrarians like you. Uh, and, and let's say you are very much correct on on this uh, in the long run of history, but in this moment, the mainstream would agree with the mainstream. And uh, I'm just curious to to think like because we're just seeing this massive consensus somehow, right? Like mm -hmm. from articles from New York Times to Wall Street Journal or, 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 or journalists, academics, scientists, or, or, or uh, children, and everybody seems to have developed this understanding of COVID. And we all seem to agree on a set of policies or, or mm -hmm. and, and that's just how social discourse or cultural scripts 
seems to have influenced us. So in, in order for us to really implement a policy like yours or, or go against those things, we would have to be under tremendous pressure, social pressure, um, political pressure, uh, but, but also it, it just seems so hard to go against the grain, right? Uh, I, I totally agree. It's, it's incredibly hard to go against the grain, but that's partly what our societies learn over time. Right? I mean, many things considered totally normal now in a social sense and in an economic sense would have been seen as heretic in, let's say, 1400 Europe. Uh, you know, this, this notion that you can just believe whatever you want, that was seen as a very, very dangerous thing. You were burnt at the stake for even thinking it. Um, and yet that's now totally normal. The, the idea of separation of powers, well, kings burnt lots of people at the stake of that too, and this is now something that is in our society. And so our societies do learn from mistakes of the past. And, and that's things which were totally accepted by 99.9% .9 of a population at some time, then in hindsight, start to be, oh, yeah, maybe we, we should not do that in the future. And then the question becomes, well, what systems do we need so that we don't make this mistake in the future? You know, okay, we've made this horrendous mistake, uh, sort of similar in death toll, probably to the First World War, maybe worse, maybe the Second World War, that, okay, that's a big mistake. This is our stupidity. What, what do we do to prevent this kind of hysteria from taking us over again? You know, what, what do we do to sort of, at those moments, have a more informed debate in the corridors of power uh, and also have an awareness of sort of historical circumstances. You know, what does this look like in terms of an economic shock? What does this look like in terms of a social shock? What are the previous historical analogs to say we should do this, we should not do this? How likely are they? You know, that, and, and one can think of societal structures to do that. And that's where the thinking should be okay, we've sort of been fooled by our own social media, our own makeup into making this horrendous mass hysterical mistake. What do we do next time? That's what the debate should be. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the matter? Because there's so much debate about political uh, systems these days. Some people say oh, a top-down authoritarian regime is much more equipped to actively gather the citizens and, and, and control the virus. And there are other people who say a federalist society, whether it's the US or, or uh, Germany, where the federal government don't have that much influence over state level, individual level decisions would actually be better equipped because it's more decentralized. And uh, mm -hmm. there, there are you know, debates about welfare states, social democratic states versus uh, otherwise. So, so would love to hear your thoughts on this idea of social organization, because you are right. We would need a different way of organizing our society entirely, not just politics, but also social discourse in order to not fall into those traps in the future. Yes, uh, I think, you know, we won't make this mistake again in the next 10 to 20 years, because despite what the mainstream is shouting now, I think there is a gradual realization that we really, really have effed up. Big time. Um, and in that sense, my views are, are no longer, I think, contrarian. I think you hear this in central banks. You hear this in uh, treasuries of, uh, of, of all the major nation states uh, and sort of, you know, the, the, the within policy elite, if you like. You know, not the academic uh, economists, but definitely the ones who are sort of working close to government because they, they are the custodians of the economy. They are used to thinking in terms of the future. What does it mean to have debt? What does it mean now that we have so much unemployment? They're seeing this. And you do hear a lot of voices uh, along that line. Um, now, then you ask really two questions, right? One is, uh, is there a political system that in that sense has really been a shining example of what to do? No, it's sort of humanity all over the world has failed in that sense. You know, the, 
the Chinese, which have this highly authoritarian system, were sort of the first to have this sort of tremendous lockdown, and that cost them an awful lot. And then the more sort of you know, welfareist democracies of Europe, of which there are many different varieties, they nearly all went for the lockdowns as well, despite all kinds of differences between you know, more egalitarian Netherlands or more top-down UK, sort of more right-wing UK government versus more uh, left-wing or, or liberal uh, French government. They all sort of made roughly the, the same choices. Uh, you know, Sweden held out a little bit, but even there, their population went along with this a lot. Uh, and the United States is the interesting place because to a certain extent, I, I think you've been lucky that uh, this is one of those rare problems where it helps to be disorganized and it helps to have an incompetent federal government. Um, <laughs> I really think you've been lucky. I really think you've been lucky. Trump. I, 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 I'm not a the fan. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fan. But, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have found myself with strange bedfellows when it comes to this particular issue. Oh <laughs> and I think you've been lucky to basically have a totally disorganized federal system. I don't think you, you would have had a better COVID pandemic if you would have not been so disorganized. <laughs> yeah. well, well, speaking of that, I, there's a really, a really interesting exchange on your website, uh, right below your, one of your blog posts, because someone made this comment, a comment uh, below an article and says, Bravo, I am upset by the way people, especially politicians, believe that man-made laws can get around the laws of nature. The virus will do what viruses do. Nature implements its law of survival of the fitness, uh, fittest through a system of predator and prey. And the role of predators is to strengthen and improve prey population by removing the less useful, the slow, the weak, the old, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and the vaccine doesn't stop or kill the virus. It just makes the immune system recognize it more quickly. And, and, and he really agrees with you. To which you responded, you said, uh, I do want to push back on this idea that what nature will allow a business, uh, we are sort of part of nature and using our na uh, natural wits to minimize the danger the rest of nature can do to us while maximizing our own interests uh, always seemed very sensible to me and nature even. Uh, so it is after all the Anthropocene. You said long live the Anthropocene. So it's, it, it, it's so interesting to me that people conflate different ideas together. And mm -hmm. someone using uh, COVID-19 as a way to, you know, quote unquote, uh, clean up the herd or root out the weak. No, neo-Darwinism. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, which is really not what you're arguing at all. Uh, yeah. but, but they would jump on your train, your very yeah. well-reasoned arguments train, and, and they would just follow you. So uh, how, do you, how do you deal with this? Because you're like... This, this it's normal. <laughs> Look, as a, as a public intellectual, you get that all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's all, always normal. I mean, one day you're accused of being a Nazi, and then on the other day... <laughs> Uh, a communist and a, a, a <laughs> well, tea hugger, and then another day, yeah, 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 no, yeah I, I, I think I've been called everything under the sun, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just water off a duck's back after a while, right? You're very upset the first couple of years that this happens to you, and after that, this is just one of the things, you know, and you should see the letters you get sent as a public intellectual. I mean, really, some people love you, other people hate you, and, and they sent you lots of <laughs> theories as well, right, you know? I got a letter from someone in the US who sort of liked my posts, and he said that I should now talk about strange UFO sightings. And I sort of like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way, right? <laughs> yeah, we yeah. are alone in space, right? right. As far as we know, we are alone in space. <laughs>
so, so proven otherwise. <laughs> you frequently encounter supporters of yours whose opinion that are in fact drastically different from you, right? That's normal, that's normal. But also, uh, look, you know, we, we humans are not as rational as we make out. So the same person who can agree with you in something completely in, a, in an area will then have a totally different view on something else again, you know? So also one has marriages of convenience in this world. You know, I, I, I find myself arguing alongside people who are normally speaking quite right wing uh, very right wing uh, in this debate who normally don't like me at all because I'm pro redistribution, pro welfare state, you know, pro human rights. Uh, some on the right are, of course, also uh, pro human rights, but we, we sometimes mean different things with that. But definitely not pro redistribution or, or pro welfare state. But yeah, on this one, we're together, which is sort of look, with, with no economy, people don't have a livelihood. And they may be worried personally about their business, which brings the millions. I may be thinking more about their workers, but we, we both see the threat. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't really wrap my head around, I mean, uh, wrap my mind around my mind sometimes when it comes to those really tough issues. Uh, and, and I can't even imagine the, the, the amounts of opinions or, or discourse that you're engaged in, especially as you voice such mm -hmm. contrarian thoughts. Uh, I, I know you have, to, I don't want to take more of your time, but, but maybe I just could ask you another couple of quick questions to wrap up. Um, what we see in the United States right now, at least, is that COVID-19 has really quickly devolved into a partisan issue. And mm -hmm. uh, you see quite clear distinctions uh, in, along party lines or political beliefs regarding whether this thing is, is fake news or, or right or whatever. Um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how our political organization could, you know, be, I mean, you, you mentioned how the U.S. kind of is disorganized in a good way, but mm -hmm. are there any political reforms that you think are sensible what we could do, whether it's in the U.K. or the U.S., uh, that, that you foresee happening or not? Well, it's, it's, of course, a totally different question as, you know, the stability of the U.S. as a political construct. Um, I think that this has been one of the cases where the partisanship and the incompetence of the top has helped you in this particular crisis. Uh, also, the partisanship. I think this, this, that will make you get out of the COVID pandemic much quicker than the European countries and also prevent you from getting back into the same mistakes. Um, but... I mean, on the whole, I, I, I've watched with dismay as, you know, a Western partner. I am part of the West. The, the U.S. is our, our strongest military ally. Uh, you know, we want, I definitely want America to do well. We, we watch with pain as, you know, the, the tremendous discord that there now is in the U.S. And, and sort of the overwhelming importance of small but well-organized special interests which are not good for the vast majority of the population. Um, the question of how you get out of that is very, very difficult. It's ultimately up to the Americans. But uh, because you, you, you would need a real political reform in order to overcome that. It's not easy to see how that's going to come about. So I fear it's going to be problematic for a long time yet before I see a solution to the American political problem. Well, I've been following the crisis for a couple of months until now, and, and one of the issues I've been really struggling with is to get accurate data or, or quote-unquote objective data, because it seems that you can always find supporting evidence, supporting facts on whatever you believe in, right? Whether it's the severity and potential side effects of the actual disease. You know, some people say only old people are getting affected. Some people say, oh, no, no, wait a second, young people and children also have side effects uh, and, and 
also the fatality rate ranged from you know 0.2, 0.1% to like 2%, 5%, whatever. Uh, the economic, the economic cost of the shutdown and things like that. So, at at this point, do you still think it's possible to come up with uh, objective, somewhat objective projections, judgments on the issue? Where do you pick your facts as as you justify your stances? Yes, uh, um, I think there are two things there, right? Well, one is the the virology of this. Um, there are, of course, differences of opinions within the, the virologists, the epidemiologists, and medical science together. But I do think that that will coalesce around a view as to what's most likely going on. It takes a while, but in that sense, you know, it's like with climate science, you do roughly get a consensus and whereby the thing that will be taught in one or two years' time as to how uh, dangerous this thing is, uh, how it's transmitted, what to do about it. And you see that consensus breaking through in many countries, right? Such as the new consensus that uh, really a, a large problem is the aerosols and that face masks help in enclosed spaces indoors. We didn't think that two months ago, it's now becoming uh, accepted consensual wisdom. Um, but that helps in terms of the spread uh, against the spread of the virus. Whether you want that is another thing. Uh, but on the economics of this, I doubt we are going to see consensus in the academic literature anytime soon, even within one or two years. I do think there will be consensus behind closed doors in sort of central banks that really this was a huge mistake. Uh, we've got to not do this again. But there is so much academic ego now riding on not admitting that particularly in the US, where basically all the top economists who spoke out on this nearly unanimously in favor of this lockdown. And of course, I think they're basically totally wrong. Well, <laughs> it's going to be very hard for them to backtrack. And so uh, I think economics is sort of has a, a deep problem now, which is that the, the usual way that economists have thought about this is in this sort of cost-benefit analysis type world is sort of, no, no, you first have to prove before you do this kind of drastic action. And now the top economists in the U.S. in particular have all flipped. Let's do drastic action without, you know, clear evidence beforehand, because that's what the virologists say we should do. That's such a strange mindset that they fought into. I think this is going to be a problem for American economics for a long time. So, so should the economists not really make their policy recommendations based on scientific facts, per se? Because you're saying they're kind of different. Uh, no, I'm, I'm saying they definitely should be scientific facts, but, but they shouldn't, as it were, outsource their own opinions as to the cost and benefit of various reactions. They should certainly, right. of course, you know, uh, as it were, they're not virologists, they're not medics, and so should sort of, you know, critically read, but sort of then accept what the, uh, the best reading is of the medical literature. Um, but a medical literature, even in this case, is only a small part of the whole issue, because a large and a much bigger part of the issue as well What's the social and economic cost of our reactions? And medics are amateurs in that. It's economists who are and should be the experts in that. What happens to whole economists, economies if you sort of, you know, lock them down, if you reduce trade, if you sever all these uh, supply chains? That's us. That's the economists. We've seen this several times in history. We teach ourselves about this. The social question of, well, you know, how much loneliness are you creating? How many suicides are you creating? What kind of effect does this have on the health system if lots of people don't show up for hospitals, if they can no longer use IVF services because they're too afraid and the systems are down? All these kind of questions, they again don't belong with the medics, they belong with us. That's social science in general. 
and we have been totally missing in action. You know, I, I, I despair at my brothers and sisters and others in our discipline who should have been at the forefront, who should have been saying, oh my God, you know, the loneliness we are creating, this is horrendous. This is going to have these and these and these consequences and costs. You know, and this looks much bigger than these benefits on the COVID-19 uh, side. So it, it, we've been totally like sheep in that sense. There's been an awful lot of academic writing, but not of this kind of forceful in the public debate, you know, but oh, whoa, 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 watch out. This is a reasonable guess of what the costs are. Uh, we should not have done this. And in that sense, we've been really not... Uh, We've not been engaged scientists at all, despite the fact that, you know, there's been an awful lot written now by economists, but it's, it's not of this kind of directly useful for the public debate. And in that sense, not useful at all. What does it matter if in two years time from now, you know, they're right or wrong? It's too late then. You know, they have to be engaged now. And I have to have a clear recommendation. So I suppose maybe that goes back to our previous discussion on uh, the the even quote-unquote mob mentality or socialization or cultural scripts that people kind of collectively buy in uh, in moments that of, of uncertainty. So I suppose there's a lot of debate even about social media today because uh, social media is a powerful uh, form of socialization. Mm -hmm. So if I'm on Twitter and all my all the people I follow and all my followers and all my friends all say they are wearing masks or they're not wearing masks, that will influence my decision to do so. So how do you feel about the way Twitter or, or, or Facebook have really done this? Because for them, they have always branded themselves as platforms. They don't take an active stance on facts per se. So uh, it's been really hard for a lot of the medical experts who, who struggle to respond to, you know, mm -hmm. tons of trolls who basically uh, uh, spread um, false information. Look, I, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't blame Twitter or Facebook directly well, they're certainly not the, the people who, who manage this. Um, but I will point out something which other social scientists have pointed out, which is that both Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these other social media platforms, they are a great device towards conformism. So they have made us more into a crowd, into a group thinking place. And if this is stereos or anything, it was a huge crowd moment in history. This really is reminiscent of, you know, the 1930s in Europe. Uh, and there are examples of, of, of course, you know, other crowd moments in other countries for different reasons, like the Cultural Revolution in China. It is that kind of feeling. It's, you, you know, you, you can't escape the opinions of everybody else and you quickly all gel into a single point of view. And if you, if you deviate ever so slightly, you know, everybody falls over you and there's sort of no real diversity of thought possible anymore because you'll just be lynched on this social media platform. And it's very, very clear that that's the role that these platforms have played. They basically played the role of enforcing and making up groupthink. And that has been, that, that is a real lesson. And that's very difficult to avoid in the future because it's, it's the nature of that medium. That, that's what it does. It, it creates great conformity. It makes us into a crowd. And crowds, historically speaking, have done awful things. You know, crowds are weird phenomena in sociology. Um, they they are not pretty things when they get emotion. So yeah, God so help us. Let's put it like that. It's it's really not about uh, one person con controlling the narrative. So I was going to ask you, no. you know, who's no, who's the, the most. Crowd uh, 
Right. It's not even the, the medical community or, or the experts or the economists no. or the policymakers per se. It's just somehow there's this weird convergence uh, mm-hmm. of crowd thinking, public opinion, uh, expert yeah. opinions all meshed up together. Uh, yes. It's a black box. And, <laughs> yes. And, and one of the real lessons of the Second World War was this. And, and one of the real lessons of the Second World War was we should avoid crowd thinking. You know, we, we should keep more diversity in our debates in our societies. We, we should have different media of different points of view and all have them state subsidized. For instance. That was part of the thinking in some places in Europe. You know, we, we, we don't want everybody to agree with each other. That's not a good thing because it just means we, we, we again become this singular group, which has very, very dangerous connotations if they all think in the wrong direction. You, you sort of want some sanity just by the diversity. So real diversity, how to maintain it is very, very difficult in, in an age of social media to maintain real diversity in thinking in terms of schools of thought. You know, we might have to think of, of just setting them up almost, you know, making sure people don't always agree with each other. What well, was, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I also wanted to ask you at the, at the end, uh, what would be your punchline? Because you, you kind of already told me that about the your... <laughs> analogy on the 1930s but, but what would be your punchline yes, what would be yeah and so my punchline on this is that this is the first real crowd moment in the western world since the 1930s right we we haven't had this kind of crowd movement since fascism i think uh, it doesn't technically mean that right now we're we're experiencing something of sorts like fascism so you, you, or, or do you think it, it technically leads to something it, horrific? It, it has the same. It has the same crowd aspect in it, right? The kind of unthinking following of what everybody else is saying. The, the also the the fact that intellectuals use their smarts in order to rationalize what the group wants, not to lead the group, but to sort of you know, oh look, being me, being clever, I've got another reason why you're all right, right? Uh, and hence basically totally anti-scientific in that sense. You saw exactly the same with with fascism, right? Smart people using their brains to help the movement rather than sort of argue whether or not it made sense at all. Um, and also this, this kind of sacrificial element of the crowd, this kind of, oh, there's something to do, let's do that. And this, this, this blinkedness, this not wanting to think of the wider things, this, this also hunting down of dissidents, of, of people who disagree with that, right? Your word contrarian is very much a crowd word, right? <laughs> um, it, is. it is that mentality right it is that no, let's let's siphon let's them single off someone out off. exactly yes. exactly it's a crowd mentality right it's a crowd mentality so i mean it's been fascinating also this this lack of own thought you know for instance if i talk with with many of my academics who normally speaking are left-wing right and i say to them look this crisis is killing millions of people in the poor world this is hardest for the people at the bottom they've lost their jobs they are now socially isolated. You know, I mean, they're dazed. That's their first reaction. They're dazed. They sort of can't believe it. They sort of, no, that can't be right. And then, you know, a week later, okay, the data's convinced us that, oh, well, it's none, none of our business. It'll, or, or it'll bounce back quick. You know, and then a, a week later again, oh, uh, well, there was nothing we could do. You know, they, they gave through basically the, the usual stages of being an anti-intellectual, right? Which is just, I don't want to know about this problem. I'm enjoying my crowd moment. And I have been baffled. I have been baffled about the betrayal on the left of, you know, the poor and the, and, and, and the weak in this world. 
you know, it's really not good. It's not a good look. Well, I, I don't know the answer to it either. I, I really don't know uh, how to solve those questions, but it's just, you pose some amazing questions and challenges, uh, Professor Friedas, and I, I, I don't know. Uh, where can our listeners learn more about your work and your thoughts? Where should they go to? Well, yes, uh, direct them to my website or, or just type in my name and you'll find, uh, you know, many of my thoughts. Um, you, you post most yeah, of your blogs on this. Yes, many blogs. I have many thoughts. Right. Sounds great. Well, th thanks so much for, for joining me today. Is, is there anything else that you think we didn't get to touch on? Anything else you feel like you went on the Kame or? There is so much that we have left unsaid, but uh, you know, this is a, a much longer conversation, I think. So let's leave it. Thanks very much, and I hope you're all well then. Of course. Well, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. That was our conversation with Professor Paul Fritas. He's a professor of well-being economics at LSE. It was a fascinating conversation, probably uh, the most epic dialogue that I've had uh, in, in the past year of me doing podcasting. So uh, please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, go to our YouTube channel to watch this video. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Professor Fritas' work, as, you, uh, as he said, uh, you may Google him. And his last name is spelled F-R-I-J-T-E-R-S. So I struggled so much to, to spell his, his last name when I was trying to look for his work. Anyways, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.